When you see Claude, you'll have to tell him how good of a job he did with the video. But as you can tell, our youth had a blast in West Virginia. Everybody came back in one piece. We had a couple of bruises, and everybody was a little bit sore. But all in all, it was a good trip. We tried to go two years ago, and we got up there, and it was 60 degrees, and the slopes were green. So we were very thankful when we arrived. Uh, Sunday, it said that the wind chill was negative 6. So I was thankful to be back in Georgia in the 30-degree weather Monday afternoon as well. Uh, but we want to dive into God's Word uh, this evening. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 46 to 54, looking at the second sign of Jesus Christ. Back in October, I began a new series that began to walk through the signs of Jesus Christ. And it's been a couple of months since we've done that, but we're moving on to the second sign tonight. The first sign recorded for us was in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, where Jesus is in Cana at a wedding and he turns water to wine. And as we looked at this sign and as we prepare for the signs following, we made a couple of observations that I want to remind us again of tonight. The first thing that we looked at is when you study the Gospel of John, trying to figure out, or any, Bible, any book of the Bible, you want to figure out what the purpose of the book is. And so John lays it out for us very plainly in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen. But in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, John gives us the purpose of his gospel. He tells us why he wrote this letter, why he wrote this message about Jesus Christ, about the life of Christ. And he states in verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John tells us pretty clearly what his purpose is. He says, my goal in writing this is that you would believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And so John's gospel here and the, the statement here as well instructs us about Jesus Christ. The first purpose is that it teaches us about Christ's life, his teachings, and his sign. And so John's gospel also not only instructs us, but it also reveals an evangelistic and missional purpose. John just doesn't want to educate us about Christ or give us more knowledge about Christ. Instead, he wants us to believe in Christ. He says that by reading this gospel and by understanding more about who Jesus is, that you would come to belief in him. And so he instructs and teaches us, and then he calls us to believe in the Son of God. And so the benefit of that belief is clearly seen. It's that you will have life in him. So John's gospel is not meant to educate us only. It's meant to change us. It's meant to leave us to the, lead us to the saving knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. In 1885, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, many of y'all are familiar with his works and his preaching, but he preached a sermon on the same text that we're going to look at this evening. And as he began that sermon entitled The No Woman's Faith, he began with a statement to his congregation. And he told his congregation in his sermon what his purpose of teaching this passage was. Spurgeon said in 1885, this narrative, the narrative that we're looking at tonight, illustrates the rise and progress of faith in the soul. He goes on to say, while I try to speak of it, I pray that we may experientially follow the track, desiring that such faith may have a rise in our hearts, may make progress in our spirits, and may become even stronger in us than it was in this nobleman. He says, the point, my brethren, is not to hear about these things only, 
but to have them repeated in your own soul. Spurgeon called his congregation so many years ago to experience the growth of faith that we're going to look at in this official's life this evening. That as we look at this second sign, we don't want to get caught up in the signs themselves, but instead we want to get caught up in the magnificence of our Savior. We want to look at these signs and realize who Jesus is, that he is the Savior of the world, that these signs are pointing to something greater, namely they're pointing to Christ himself. And then we as a people, as we study this, that we grasp on to the truth that he is truly the Son of God. That we acknowledge, as John would say in chapter 1, verse 9, that he is the true light which gives light to everyone. And so my challenge this evening is that this narrative would be repeated in our own souls as well. That we would leave here changed, growing in our faith, looking at this example of the nobleman and the sign that Jesus gives him, and then also going and living that out in our lives as well. So if you'll turn with me in John chapter 4, we'll read from verses 46 down to 54. It says, So he came to Cana, speaking of Jesus, so he came to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. As we look at this text this evening, I want to divide it up into three main sections as we look and break down the narrative. The first is that we're going to look at a desperate need in verses 46 to 47. We're going to see that this official had a desperate need. And then secondly, in verses 48 to 50, we see a questionable motive. We see Jesus look to see and question his motive as to why he came to Christ. And then thirdly, we see in verses 51 to 54, an authentic faith. So we begin with a desperate need. It says he came to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water to wine. So we saw in John chapter 2 several months ago that this first sign is taking place in Cana. It says that there's this official who's from Capernaum, his son's ill. He hears that Jesus is coming from Judea to Galilee, and so he goes down and asks him to come and heal his son to the point of death. And so this is where we begin tonight. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer as we dissect the passage. Father, we're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your gospel. God, we're thankful that through the power of the Spirit, you equip John to write this gospel in order that we can not only be instructed and taught and see the signs that you have done, but God, also that it will spark a missional endeavor in our own lives. God, that we would go and share our faith with others. God, that we would grow deeper in our trust and belief in you. God, that we would not be focused on the signs themselves, but that we would be focused on you, our Savior. 
that we would see the magnificence of your son, the love that you had shown us through him. And God, that these signs are just a glimpse of his magnificence. And so may, may we rejoice in that, knowing that he is active in our lives as well. May we leave here not only just educated and having more knowledge of your scripture, but God, may we leave here changed, applying what we learned tonight to our own lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Having a child is an amazing teaching opportunity. Uh, many of y'all know that I have Hatcher. He's almost two years old in March. Time flies by when you have a little kid. And so each new stage that we get into is exciting and it's wonderful and at times it's exhausting and miserable as well. But all these different things are happening with Hatcher as he grows and as he changes and as he matures. And so we're at this stage now where he kind of wants to do everything on his own. He thinks that he's grown. He thinks that he's able to do things that he's really physically not able to do. And so whether it's uh, drinking from a regular cup and not a sippy cup or using a fork and spoon or walking down the stairs or just playing with his toys, he started to become more independent. And so at times he still wants mommy and daddy and he still wants to be held, but at other times he thinks that he can do things on his own, that he doesn't need us, that he doesn't want us to help. And so being a boy and being a typical boy, he loves cars and buses and trains and tractors and boats and all the things that little boys love. And so for Christmas, my grandparents gave him a little matchbox car set. Y'all have probably all seen him, just little bitty cars. And it came with this little truck and it had a little bitty trailer and on top of the trailer was a little boat. And so of course, as a little boy, he absolutely loved it and he wanted to play with it. And every time I noticed that he played with it, he would get frustrated. And you would see him play, and then he'd kind of cry, and I'd ask him if I could help him with something, and he'd say no, and he'd get frustrated again. And I came over to see what the problem was, and the problem was on the back of the truck, there was a little hole, and in the trailer there was a, a little stick, and you were supposed to put the trailer in the truck. Well, as soon as you pulled the, the truck and the trailer, if it bumped over anything, they would fall apart. And his little fine motor skills, being a two-year-old and still developing, he was unable to put the truck and the trailer back together. And it would frustrate him that he had to acknowledge that there was a need that he needed mommy or daddy to come and help him, even though he didn't want us to help. And so it's normal. He's a two-year-old. He's developing these skills, but yet his little brain is working and attempting to try to figure things out on his own. And so at times that's good, and at times he can figure it out on his own, and we get excited, and it's awesome to see that next stage and him developing his skills. But at other points, he has to come to the point where he realizes that he does need help. And so more often than none, he gets frustrated, and he cries, and he gets upset because he realizes in his own power and his own will, he can't do it on his own. And so as I watched Hatcher and I see him play with his trucker and trailer, and for a couple of weeks I just actually hid the trailer because I was getting frustrated at seeing him cry. And so I told him the trailer was gone and he'd look around the house and couldn't find it. And it's kind of starting to come back into the house because after a month he's actually trying to figure out how to do it himself. But as I watch him play with these toys and figure things out, it reminds me of how often we too get frustrated and want to do things in our own power and will. That we, as well as grown-ups, don't like to admit that we have needs. And that oftentimes those needs can't be met on our own. That oftentimes we have to look to someone else. Specifically, we have to look to Christ to help us with those needs, to help us with our sin problem. But yet our sinful nature tells us that we don't need any help, that we can do it all on our own. 
that we don't have to acknowledge that we're insufficient to live this Christian life. But yet scripture tells us something different. It tells us that the message of the gospel is that we are broken, that we're flawed, that we're sinful, that we're not exactly who we should be yet. We need someone else to help us figure it out. Specifically, we are in need, we are in, need of a savior. A.W. Tozer once said, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. If we're not growing in our Christian life, if we're not coming to Christ, oftentimes it's because we're still troubled, we're still seeking, we're still making little forward progress because we're not acknowledging that we have a need. That we're in need of a savior to change us and to shape us. And so tonight's passage tells us the story of an official who came to the end of himself, who acknowledged his need and thankfully came to the right person to fix that need. And not only does he come to Jesus and Jesus heals the official's son, but he also heals the official's heart. He calls him to belief in Christ and he and his entire household experiences salvation. And so the text this evening begins with this official who comes from Capernaum to Cana in order to meet Jesus and ask him to come heal his son. The word for official here in Greek could be translated as a nobleman or a kingsman as well. This was likely, scholars believe, an official that would have worked for Herod Antipas and his court. And so the scholars know that Herod Antipas was the tetrarch of Galilee from 4 BC to about 39 AD. And so likely this man is an official who has had great influence, great power. Anything that he wants to acquire, he probably can get. Anything that he wants or desires, he can access. But yet we still find him coming to Jesus, acknowledging that even in his great influence and power that he needs someone else. That he has a son who is at the point of death and cannot be healed. And so you picture this man who's most likely tried everything else to save his son, and he's coming down to the point where his son is almost dead, and he realizes, I've got to find help. And so Jesus arrives in Galilee, and this man comes to him and says, he says, come down and heal my son. So Galilee is Jesus' home. It's where he's grown up. It's, Cana is, a, is located approximately about 10 miles from Nazareth, where Jesus would have grown up and become a man. About 15 miles east of Cana towards the Sea of Galilee is this town of Capernaum. And so this official son lives 15 to 20 minutes, 20 miles away. It's a, a long walk, a long distance for the official to come and meet Jesus. But yet he hears Jesus coming to Cana. He hears likely of the wedding feast and the water turned to wine and the signs that he's doing and the things that he's teaching. And so for whatever reason, he comes to Christ. He has this desperate need. He comes to the end of himself and has likely tried everything he can to heal his son. And so for whatever resources and influence and power he has, he comes up short. And so he believes that Jesus is somehow capable of what no one else can do for his son. Which brings us to Jesus' response to the man in verses 48 to 50. Look at verse 48. It says, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. 
As human beings, we love to be entertained, whether it's movies or televisions or, or concerts or sporting events. I was looking uh, at some information about Georgia football and was looking at the national championship the other day. And USA Today and ESPN posted articles saying that the average ticket price for the University of Georgia and Alabama national championship game in Atlanta was around $2,500 online. And the stadium was packed if any of y'all watched it. If any of y'all were able to go, I'd love to be invited next year. You can let me know. My calendar will be clear. But we love entertainment. And we spend vast amounts of money to be entertained. And so people throughout history have enjoyed being spectators. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying football or enjoying a movie or watching TV or going to a play or a musical. But what happens is oftentimes our love for entertainment overflows into our relationship with Christ and the religious world. In this passage, Jesus responds, and he responds in what seems to be a rather harsh way to the Capernaum official. You see this guy coming with a need, and he has a sick son, and you think that Jesus would have compassion on this man, that he would immediately say, yes, let me come with you. But yet, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But as we take a closer look at the passage, we're going to see that Jesus points out that the Galileans desire for signs and wonders. That they have this desire not because they have true belief in Jesus Christ, but because of sensationalism. They come to Jesus and expect him to satisfy their spectator interest. They say, we want to watch the next big thing. We want to watch the big game, the big show, the big sign. We heard what happened at Cana before, so let's go see what this guy's going to do next. And so Jesus reveals that their motives are weak, that their faith is not true. Instead, he confronts it with their questionable motives of following him. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Back in verse 45, it states, so when he came, speaking of Jesus to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so the Galileans welcome him not because they are seeking the Savior, but because they have seen what happened in Jerusalem. They're excited because here's this guy, this wonder worker, this sign maker, and so they want to be entertained. And so this passage sheds light on Jesus' response to the official. He says, here, as he responds, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In the Greek, the you here is plural. So for us in Georgia and have grown up in the South, it would really be translated, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. He's saying, unless you all, you, all you people here, all you Galileans, all that are in this crowd, not just speaking to the official, but he says, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus realizes the welcome that he received is not the true welcome. They're not welcoming the Savior. They're welcoming the signs. They're welcoming the per performer. They want to be a spectator. They want to be able to sit around the gate and talk with their friends and say, did you see what he did? Did you see how amazing that was? And oftentimes, sadly, we see this in American Christianity as well. We see so-called pastors who entertain their church who never teach the gospel of Christ, and they, they grow in numbers and crowds show up, and we think they must be doing something right, but yet they're teaching something completely different than the gospel. It's because our sinful nature loves to be entertained. We don't want to be told that we have a need. We don't want to be told that we have a, that we have a sin problem. We want our ears tickled. You see, Jesus knows the heart of man. 
In John chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, right after that first sign had taken place at the wedding of Cana, he says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus realizes what's happening here. He understands that the crowd is there. He understands their true motivation. They weren't there for Christ. They were there for miracles and signs. They were there for entertainment. They were there to be spectators. But you see, Jesus didn't want them to get caught up in the signs and wonders. He wanted them to focus on who he was and the salvation that he was providing and giving freely. He didn't want spectators. He wanted true followers and believers. But yet there's still a problem. This official is still here. He still has a son that is sick. And so let's look at the response that he gives to Jesus' reply. The official requests once again that Jesus would come down to Capernaum and heal his son. He reiterates the fact that his son is near death. He says, sir, he shows him a sign of respect. Please come down. Please heal my son. He's to the point of death. And so instead of accepting the man's request and traveling to Capernaum, Jesus commands the man to go. He doesn't say, I'll come with you. Instead, he says, go, your son will live. He doesn't tell him he's going to give him a sign, but instead he gives him a promise with his word. Jesus demands that the official have faith that is desperate enough to trust in his word. To not trust in some outward sign or work, but to trust in the word of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So how does the nobleman respond? He says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And let's look at the outcome of this man's belief and trust in Jesus and his word. In verses 51 to 54, we see an authentic faith. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Warren Wearsby is a pastor and commentator, and he describes the official's faith and growth this way. He states that the official begins with crisis faith. He's about to lose his son. He has no alternatives, and so he comes to Jesus. And yet then this crisis faith then moves to a confident faith. He believes the word of Jesus. He makes the trip home, leaving Jesus and his signs behind. So he goes from a crisis faith, not knowing what else to do, having no other alternatives, to a confident faith, believing the word of God, trusting it somewhat, and leaving Jesus and his signs behind. And then on his way home, he's met by his servants, and his confident faith is transformed into confirmed faith. 
The boy is all of a sudden healed at the exact hour that Jesus says he will live. And so he goes from crisis faith to confident faith to confirmed faith. And lastly, his confirmed faith, according to Wearsby, is transformed into a contagious faith. He believes that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Son of God, that he is the promised Messiah. And not only does he believe, but he shares it with his family, and they too believe. Oftentimes our culture says that seeing is believing. But yet we see in this passage that believing is seeing. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This nobleman exemplifies faith that is unbelievable. Simply put, faith is taking Jesus at his word. It's taking Jesus at his word. It's the convictions of things not seeing, not just seeing and believing, but believing, and that by believing, then we see the miracle work of Jesus Christ. And this faith pays off tremendously. He goes from belief that is based on signs and wonders into belief that is authentic and real. He learns who Jesus truly is, and he trusts him fully. And so what an example of us of true and authentic faith. This man leaves behind the one person that he believes can heal his son, but yet he takes with him Jesus' word, his promise. It's a real faith that we see also in the story of the woman of Samaria when Jesus goes to the well in Judea in chapter 4 earlier. And Jesus confronts this adulterous woman. He tells her of all the things that she has done. And then she goes and leaves the well and goes back into town. And she tells all her friends and the Samaritans about this Jesus who is the Messiah. And we see in the story that they too believe. And at first they believe because of her story. They realize who she is and all the things that she does or has done. And Jesus tells her all of those and they believe. And in chapter 4, verse 41, it says, And many more believed because of his word, speaking of Christ's word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Samaritans earlier in chapter 4 and the official here believe in Christ because of his word. They don't believe because of the signs and wonders. They believe because Jesus is Jesus Christ's word and his promises. They understand that he is truly the savior of the world. This official's faith moves from this weak, crisis-like faith to this confident and confirmed and contagious faith. He believes and he goes home. He doesn't insist on Jesus showing him a miracle. He doesn't say, but Jesus, please just give me a sign. No, he leaves, he doesn't complain, and he believes. We see through this passage that Jesus has the power to heal, that he is not limited by spatial limitations, that he speaks with authority and healing is immediate, that he speaks and it is done. George Mueller once said, faith begins where man's power ends. Faith begins where man's power ends. This official came to the end of himself the end of his own power, entrusting Jesus with the healing of his son, and he believed. And as John says in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, he believed, and by believing, he had life in his name. 
This is the key point of this passage. Jesus desires to lead us all from inadequate belief to a confident, confirmed, and contagious faith. Jesus desires to lead us all, you and me today, from inadequate belief to a confident, confirmed, and contagious faith. Sometimes that means that he desires or he denies our original requests as he did with the official. He doesn't give the official what he originally wanted. He doesn't give him signs. He doesn't come to Capernaum. But yet he still answers him in a way that he did not expect. And he does this often in our lives in order to move us from the point where, or move us to the point where we will take him at his word. He wants us to have total trust in his promises, to respond to him with faith. And so Jesus came not just to give us signs and wonders, but to save us from our sin. He wants us to trust in him and to believe in him, to believe in his word, to believe in his promises. Each of us today are given opportunities to grow our faith through the difficult circumstances of life that we will encounter. All of us are going to face difficulties in this life as we seek to live for Christ. Some of us are going to lose loved ones. Some of us are not going to experience healing on this side of glory. But the question for us is always, will we turn to the Word of God and to Christ in the midst of those trials? Will we acknowledge our need and our helplessness and will we turn to the Word of God and to Christ in the midst of our trials? Will we acknowledge that we are desperate and that we are in need of a Savior? Will we come to Him with the right motives? Will we come to be entertained? Will we come to be a spectator? Will we come to have our ears tickled? To be able to talk with our friends and talk about how fun it was at church? Or do we come with the right motives? Coming to worship and glorify and seek the Savior and Son of God. Are we marked by an authentic and growing faith? You see, this official believed, but his belief changed his entire life. It changed his entire family. It continued in his life. And so we don't, just, we don't take salvation or we don't trust Jesus in our lives just for salvation. We trust him for sanctification as well. We seek to grow and to trust him more and more in our lives. We must have a faith that is continually growing. This official came to Jesus so that his son would be temporarily healed from death. Jesus gave him life for a few more years. We don't know. But the man and his entire household gained not only the temporary healing that he sought, but they also gained the eternal life-giving grace that Jesus Christ alone can provide. Jesus answered his earthly desire for his son to live but Jesus gave him more than he could ever imagine. He gave him eternal life, and not only eternal life for him, but also for his family. So may we too today come to Christ for ultimate healing. If you've never acknowledged that point in your life where you need a Savior, it's the time to do that today. But if you have come to that point, it doesn't mean that you do it once and move on with your life. It means that you continually trust in his promises. That when life gets difficult, when things don't go as planned, when God answers the things that you have in your life differently than you expect, that you trust in him, that you exemplify faith, 
that we trust in his word each and every day of our lives, whether in the good times or the bad. Spurgeon told his congregation, the point, my brethren, is not to hear about these things only, but to have them repeated in our own soul. May the nobleman's example of faith and belief be repeated in our lives this evening. May we be able to look at times in our life when we see God testing us and stretching us, and may we place our faith in him as the nobleman did. That when God gives us a man to go, and he gives us a command and promises us something, that we will believe in that with wholehearted faith. Please join me in prayer. God, so often we come before you and we are seeking things in our own desires. God, that we come to you with wrong motives, with selfish desires and worldly desires. But God, I pray that we will come to you seeking you as the Savior and Son of God and promised Messiah that you are. God, we see that through the difficulties of life and through the trials that we face, that oftentimes you are calling us to deeper faith. You're not promising us an easy life now, but you are promising us eternity with you. And so, God, as we face these difficulties, as this congregation faces temptations and trials and tribulations, God, may we run to you. No matter how far we've strayed from you, may we seek after you. God, may our faith go from crisis to confidence to confirmed faith, knowing that you complete your promises. And God, may it be contagious. God, may we as this official not only accept the promise that you have given us through the gospel, but God, may we go and share that to a lost and dying world. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. God, we pray that you will just deepen our trust and faith in you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.